Hey everyone, I'm Sally Abed. I'm Dina Kraft. I'm a Palestinian activist in Israel. And I'm a Jewish-Israeli journalist. This is Groundwork. A podcast about Palestinians and Israelis refusing to accept the status quo and working to change it. Groundwork is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. Welcome back. Today we're heading to the West Bank. And it really has been especially deadly a couple of months there since Israel's new right-wing government was elected. Over 60 Palestinians have been killed with what the army has said is part of its operation to crush Palestinian militia groups. We also saw that 15 Israelis have lost their lives in this escalation. And recently we saw Israeli settlers going into the Palestinian town of Hawara and they launched a revenge attack. 35 homes and 90 cars were torched by some 400 settlers. And they killed one Palestinian. Israeli minister Batsaliel Smotrich responded to the pogrom by condoning the settlers' actions, saying Israel should wipe out Hawara village. He is in charge of civilian affairs now in the West Bank. Today's episode looks at the day-to-day life for Palestinians in Area C of the West Bank. So Area C is the largest area, and it's under Israeli security and civil control. Unfortunately, our story starts with another tragic death, the death of a leading activist. His name was Haj Suleiman. A quick note, I should tell you that this episode contains descriptions of death and dying that may be difficult to hear. Please consider this before listening yourself or with young children. On the afternoon of January 5th, 2022, Israeli forces entered the village of Umm al-Khir. They were there to impound a handful of unregistered cars. A police jeep and a police-contracted truck drove in. They loaded three cars onto the truck. And then, Hash Sulaiman, in an act of civil disobedience, put himself in between the police and their way out. The police car stopped, but the truck didn't. It ran Hajj Sulaiman over and put him immediately into a coma. Hajj Sulaiman never woke up. Just over two weeks later, he died from his injuries. There is no easy accounting for his death. And this isn't a true crime show. We are not trying to get to the bottom of how he died. There is video footage for that. What is in question here is deeper. Underneath the story of his death lie some stark truths about how Palestinians in Area C of the West Bank live and how the Israeli government abuses its power and willfully neglects the Palestinian people who live here. New Israel Fund's Elisheva Goldberg has the story. Here we are, here again, we're putting the second sign for my uncle Sulaiman's memorial in this place, in this spot where he uh, murdered by the Israeli police. Tarek Hathaleen and I are just off a dirt road that connects two sections of the tiny Palestinian village where he lives, called Umm al-Khair. He's erecting, for the second time, a memorial for his uncle, Haj Suleiman. A second time because a few weeks ago, settlers from a nearby illegal outpost drove into the village and smashed the first one he put up. This time, Tarek and his relatives have erected an iron fence around it. Tarek, 27, instructs a gaggle of his cousins. They're going to lift this very large slab that has the monument on it. They put it on cushions to transport it on the bed of this truck. It's really big. It's about as tall as a man. It's hot. Like, really hot. Looking at Tarek, I almost melt. 
He's wearing long pants, a threadbare sweater, and a cap that barely covers his spectacular mess of thick, jet black hair. It's hair he hasn't cut since his uncle died. You growing it for him? Try to me thinking, but so difficult, so hard. His uncle Suleiman also had long hair. In fact, it was a part of his signature look. Long hair and beard, flowing white headscarf, and his shepherd's staff. As Tark lays the cement for the memorial, I can see the resemblance. I've actually been to Umm al-Khair before, a few times, and I've met Tarek. I first came as an activist about a decade ago, and I've come back many times since. But this is the first time I've been back since Haj Suleiman's death. Tarek tells me that for as long as he can remember, the Israeli government has been trying to push him and his family off the land. Many Israelis want to annex all of Area C, where most Israeli settlements are. But more than 100,000 Palestinians also live here, including Tarek. Hajj Suleiman, Tarek says, was the front line of defense. He would resist with no arms. He would use, you know, chanting. He would use his body, unarmed body. Suleiman's generation was the first to grow up under military occupation. His life revolved around keeping his family, his village, and other Palestinians in the area safe. It wasn't a life that his uncle sought, Tarek says. It was one he was forced to out of necessity. Palestinians have been living in the West Bank for generations. But many, like Hajj parents, came as refugees in 1948. His parents and their Bedouin tribe moved to Umm al-Khair after fleeing their homes during what Jewish Israelis call the War of Independence and what Palestinians call the Nakbe, or catastrophe. They thought the war might last just a short while, and then they would go back. But it wasn't a short while, and they didn't go back. Now, they were refugees. They made a new home in Umm al And as a young man, Suleiman worked as a shepherd. But around 1980, a dozen or so years after Israel conquered the West Bank, their land started to be taken from them again. The Israeli government declared their grazing land its own. One day, a couple of Suleiman's littlest goats snuck under the razor wire fence of the illegal settler outpost that would become the settlement of Carmel. And he tried to rescue them. When the police came, instead of helping him get his goats back, they arrested him. Without his land, Haj Suleiman could no longer earn his living. And it was in those years, the years in which his family's land was forcibly taken for a second time, that he started organizing and nonviolently resisting. For 40 years, Suleiman's activism would be well documented. Photos and YouTube videos show him, his shepherd staff in one hand and a Palestinian flag in the other, walking directly in front of bulldozers trying to demolish homes, or standing between soldiers, his arms raised, trying to stop them from arresting someone. He had been a model for the next generation of activists, Tariks. We are activists, you know, whether we choose to be or not, this is something that we have to do to defend ourselves, to defend our lives. But last May, Suleiman was hit and run over by a truck subcontracted by the Israeli police. The police who were there did not help him. They did not offer first aid or call an ambulance. Instead, residents of Umm al-Khair picked Haj Suleiman up where he lay and took him in a jeep, hazards flashing, to the area's closest clinic. And that's when Tarek arrived. You know, when I first saw him, and you know, his whole body full with the blood, it's so horrible scene. You know, it's very hard because it's my uncle Suleiman, my dearest person to my heart. It was too much even for the doctor. A doctor that he is trained to, you know, deal with such 
you know, scenes with such, you know, uh, cases, it was shaking. Whether or not it was an accident, Tarek said, we'll never know. Tarek pauses to look at the monument, now fully erected once more. It's very, very, you know, painful. It's very, very painful. This is the most painful thing that we ever experienced in our life. Home demolition is nothing compared to this scene. His eyes are heavy, his forehead wrinkles. He nods at me and politely excuses himself. He needs to go make food for his family and others in the community. I go see another of Hajj Suleiman's nephews, someone I've met with a lot over the years, and by now, an old friend. His name is Auda Hathaleen. <gasps> I find Auda's two-year-old son first. His name is Watan. His toddle reminds me of my twins. They're the same age, born just days apart. I ask him if he can tell me where his dad is. Instead, he offers me a soccer ball. Luckily, I spot Auda near the community center, a long metal trailer, now decorated with a mural of Hajj Suleiman, his arms outstretched, a red heart on his chest. Most spaces in Umulkher aren't this big. The homes are small one- or two-room shanties with sheep and goats and lean-tos nearby. Seeing me in all my radio gear, he leans extra close to the microphone to wish me a good morning. Whoa, 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 whoa. Auda is a jokester. He's also an English teacher and a human rights activist. I live here in Umar I born here. The laws that are in place here, he says, instead of helping him and his family make a life here, actually make it nearly impossible to stay. It all comes back to the branch of the army responsible for ruling Area C. It's called the Civil Administration, and it oversees Jewish Israelis and Palestinian people here. From the community center, Auda and I can see the settlement of Carmel next door. They're red-roofed, two-story homes with lush backyards. Omar Khair is, like, surrounded by the settlement from three sides. And from the fourth side, you know, like, they put the chicken farms. Across the valley are a couple of oblong buildings. These are the chicken farms that belong to Carmel. Out of points straight up at some of the power lines. The electricity is passing from the settlement to the chicken farms. Over our head, it's just crazy. The, the, the chickens have electricity 24 hours. 24 hours. The chickens even have big backup generators if needed. But the people here, they are not allowed to get electricity. The civil administration is theoretically in charge of services to all residents. Water, electricity, access to roads. But Palestinians have not been allowed to pave any roads. Their requests for water hookups have been denied. Here in Umar I and my brothers, we cannot use the washing machine in the same day. It needs water. Just as their requests to be hooked up to the Israeli power grid have been rejected. We asked them a lot. We said so many times, we need electricity. It's not fair. And, and we cannot get it. Unable to access electricity from the grid, Auda, Tarek, and their families rely on solar panels instead. But these panels produce very limited amounts of electricity and the same amount of electricity every year. Not good for a place like Umm al-Khair with a growing population. Last year, for example, three girls of Umm al-Khair got married. Mabrouk. Every year we have you know, like new families. Years ago, like 20 families, for example, were sharing it. He means sharing electricity from the solar panels. Then 25 families sharing it. Now we're like 32 families sharing it. It's not enough? It's not enough at all. It's really not enough. This makes the most mundane activities difficult, and sometimes high stakes. Auda tells me about a time when his son Watan, that kid who offered me his ball earlier, was just an infant, three or four months old. It was the middle of summer, 
dangerously hot when we ran out of the electricity. I mean, what we what did we do? You know, like we took water and we slept outside. We slept outside, even like he's a baby. In Area C, you need a permit from the civil administration for just about everything. So the permit regime really affects the entire territories. I spoke with Avner Gvaryahu about this. He's from the Israeli organization Breaking the Silence. They collect and publish testimonies from former Israeli soldiers who served in the occupied territories, including in the civil administration. If you want to expand your house or build then for your sheep or do anything on your own land, you need to get permission. The thing is, they don't generally get those permissions. The people deciding on the permits are all Israeli soldiers. And according to the Israeli NGO Peace Now, 98% of Palestinian requests for building permits between 2009 and 2018 were flatly rejected. The numbers are astonishing, while at the same time, you will have massive building and infrastructure put on the ground by the state for the settlers. Because Palestinians just can't get these permits, they build without them. But once they do, whatever they've built is now technically illegal, and it's subject to demolition. The first demolition Umulkher ever saw was in 2007. The army demolished Hajj Suleiman's home. Many Palestinian structures that anyone that goes to the region will see have a demolition order on them. Palestinians don't have the ability to build legally in these territories because Israel sees these territories as their own. Umulkher had a communal oven, a bread oven. It was one of the only sources of food in the village. It was a traditional walk-in brick structure with a ceramic inner layer. Auda says it fed somewhere in the range of 100 people. The oven had been around for decades, but even so, it didn't have a permit. So in 2010, the civil administration issued a demolition order. The residents, led by Haj Suleiman, appealed. They submitted a request for a retroactive permit from the courts. Haj Suleiman told them, I didn't come to live next to you. You came to live next to me. The court initially sided with the residents. It issued a temporary stay of demolition. But very soon after, a young couple from Carmel sued the residents. Their lawsuit names Haj Suleiman as a defendant. They claimed more than 100,000 shekels, that's $28,000, in damages from the smoke that the oven generated. They said that it bothered them and their children. And in the fall of 2014, the civil administration came and demolished the oven, along with six other so-called illegal homes, including Haj Suleiman's, again. The settlers in Carmel keep a close eye out for any new construction. Tarek told me about an old woman who lives just across the fence who reports every single new building, tent, pen, structure, to the army. And then they come and destroy it. Here's Avner again. We really see an ecosystem that's developed between the state efforts and the settlement efforts. I think the best analogy that I've heard is around each and every settlement, you have ripples of violence, sort of like uh, throwing a pebble in a pond. And these ripples aren't separated from each other, but create a ring of control that prevents Palestinian movement, ex expansion, and in many cases, just basically living prevents Palestinians from living. I've thought about this a lot since Hajj Suleiman's death. 
Avner described a well-organized, state-led effort to minimize the presence of Palestinian communities in Area C. I've also heard it described as a quiet transfer. The slow, small ways that the army makes it hard for Palestinians to just stay. This quiet transfer has been happening slowly for a long time. But in recent weeks and months, the army's been ramping up home demolitions in the area. They've been confiscating more cars, even demolishing the local school. Part of this is because Israel's new government is the farthest right in its history. Another part is because back in May of 2021, the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that the army would be allowed to forcibly expel the residents of eight villages in this area. It's an area that Palestinians call Musafariyata. Those villages are right next to Umulkher. The army claims that they need the land for a firing zone, a space to practice with heavy artillery and other weapons. But the ruling means that over 1,000 of Umulkher's neighbors could be left homeless. The Association for Civil Rights in Israel called this an egregious violation of the most basic human rights. And since the court ruling, Abda says, Everything is really scary. I mean, they will not stop there. They will continue. Residents fear Umul Khair will be next. But Auda insists that if they are to walk in the ways of Hajj Suleiman, they must try to prevent it. Auda and Tarek, in recent years, they tell me, have done something that made Hajj Suleiman very proud. They've organized. They've joined hands with other villages in Masafariyata. They've brought in Jewish activists who are less likely to be beaten and arrested by the army. And they've begun building another ecosystem, a new one. That's how I first met them a handful of years ago. They call it co-resistance. Avner used the word too. There's a very strong, open, and welcoming Palestinian community that has been, for years, welcoming activists. And that sort of reaction to the ecosystem of violence, of sort of this ecosystem of co-resistance, is, is something that we see succeed. We see work. It's not an air-conditioned room somewhere. It's here on the ground. Auda says that to save Umulkher, their best bet is to bring as much attention to the situation of their neighbors as possible. Enough that it would cause an international incident if the Israeli government were to go through with the eviction. They see a model in a place called Khan al-Ahmar, another Area C Palestinian village. Khan al-Ahmar was approved for eviction by the Supreme Court back in 2018. But it never happened. I mean, we succeeded, so Khan al-Ahmar didn't get evicted. And now, through this thing they're calling co-resistance, they're trying to replicate that success. And this is exactly what's happening in Masafriyata. One of our friends started the hashtag Save Masafriyata. Now the hashtag Save Masafriyata is known. That hashtag has become a calling card for co-resistance. Auda, Tarek, and now Israelis like Avner and so many others are intent on carrying on Hajj Suleiman's legacy. A legacy of never backing down. Tarek told me about a time, three or four years ago, when he traveled with Hajj Suleiman to a protest in East Jerusalem near the barrier that separates Israel from the West Bank. Army personnel threw tear gas to disperse the otherwise peaceful protest, and Tarek hightailed it in the other direction. But when the smoke cleared, Tarek saw Haj Suleiman near the wall, alone, having never run from the burning gas. And he's chanting, Allahu Akbar, Allah Alhamd, Allahum al Asra wa Masra. Translated roughly, Haj Suleiman's chant means, God is the greatest, God is merciful, may God free the prisoners and Jerusalem. Tarek told me it was a kind of prayer for freedom. 
It's the phrase chiseled in the memorial that Tarek put up for him. Suleiman used to repeat it over and over. And how come this man, you know, didn't run away? And that's very clear that he was ready to sacrifice his life for what he is doing. You know, he would throw himself on the road of the bulldozers. And sometimes it worked. He's a symbol for all of us, not only for us as Palestinians. He never, you know, got hesitant, even for a second, to resist the occupation. After a few seconds of silence, Tarek adds, This is the truth about him. He never called himself an activist, but we call him an activist. He didn't call himself an activist. It was just how he lived his life. Elisheva Goldberg. To learn more about the co-resistance, Aude, Tarek, and Avner building, go to savemasaferyata.com. I do want to take this and really reflect on what this story uh, meant to me, uh, listening to it. You know, a lot of us, usually we really uh, look at the peaks of the violence, at the escalations, at the death uh, tolls, uh, at the raids, at the pogroms, and we really overlook the day-to-day life, the unfathomable uh, reality, whether you're five or you're 75 as a Palestinian, especially in these areas and in Area C. Uh, you know, we really need to start understanding how these things are maintained and how they will also be even more solidified into the Israeli court and Israeli legal system, uh, which I think really relates to uh, the current protest. Yeah, all of this, what you're saying now, reminds me of, our, in some ways, our first episode for the new season, where we talked to Iran, and he's out in the streets in these mass demonstrations that Israel is being rocked by at the moment. But he's talking about the need to reframe the conversation, not just about saving democracy, but fixing it. Of course, a huge part of this protest movement, as you note, is about you know, saving democracy from the government's attempts to basically overthrow the court system. But also, as we saw in this story, the same court system is allowing the military to displace Palestinian residents in the West Bank. So there's a need to not just save the court, but to fix it. Okay, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new story, so stay tuned. Groundwork is created and produced by me and Yoshi Fields. The episode was reported by Elisheva Goldberg with content and audio editing by Yoshi. Additional content editing by Hannah Barg. Joel Shupak scored the piece. If you found what you just heard meaningful, if you think this kind of reporting is important, we need your help in spreading the word. We depend on you to make these stories. So make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. This show is a joint production of New Israel Fund and the Alliance for Middle East Peace. New Israel Fund is the premier funder and organizer of progressive Israeli civil society, with over $300 million from tens of thousands of people to hundreds of organizations, working for change on the ground for over 40 years. The Alliance for Middle East Peace is the largest and fastest growing network of Palestinian and Israeli peace builders. You can learn more about them in their websites in nif.org and allmap.org. And you can learn more about our show there or at groundworkpodcast.com. Our theme music is by System Ali, a multilingual binational hip hop group whose cultural activity is deeply rooted in the communities where they work. Additional music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was recorded by Charles D. Montebello. Make sure to subscribe 
and thanks for listening. Shukran al-Mutaba. Toda.